A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode has been generously sponsored. Uh, this episode about Washington Heights um, has been generously sponsored in memory of Chaim ben David Vireyasoy, Moshe Mordechai ben Svi Vireyasoy. And it should be um, for their memory. And I want to remind you at this point that sponsorships are available for additional city, cities, uh, which in our um, ongoing series of great American Jewish cities, there are some cities that are still available for sponsorships, and regular episodes are also available for sponsorships, so you can be in touch with me about that. I also want to, you know, this, is, this episode is about Washington Heights, uh, so I want to apologize for the late posting. Um, it was all ready to go yesterday, and I had already all my notes and everything, and I decided I'm going to call uh, Rabbi and Rebetzin Schachter as like an afterthought to ask them for their favorite stories about the Heights. I know they're, besides for being a very, very prominent G'dayle uh, Yisrael, uh, but um, they're also a long-time residents of the neighborhood, and on that angle, I wanted to hear if they have any good stories, so I called them up, and instead of a couple of minutes, it ended up being a couple of hours, and uh, some fantastic stories and memories that they very graciously shared, Rabbi Herschel and Rebetzin Shoshana Shachter, and I was privileged to, to be able to speak to them, so I reorganized all the notes, and now it's going to be two parts, uh, we have to divide, it's too long to be in one part, some great stories, some in general, and many are from them, and I hope I remember to credit them for every single one that they gave, but just in case I neglect to, so you should know um, from the start that much of what uh, is, is going to be said comes from the stories that I just heard from them uh, last night. In fact, um, <clears throat> I, have a per, I play for both sides of the team in, in uh, Washington Heights, and Washington Heights is famous as both the home of, of Yeshiva University, as well as being the center of the Kehila of Kahala Das Yeshurun, of Rabbi Breuer's Kehila, later Shimon Schwab, the Yekis, the German Jews who set up their 
uh, community there, um, which is also, you know, the, the, both both sides of the story. So my personal connection is on both sides. And I have the privilege to be married into the Katzenstein family, which is the Yeki aristocracy, uh, very much part of the rich Yeki history in Washington Heights, the Katzenstein family. They played a big role there and they're related to all kinds of people there. So that's on one side. And on the other side, I the only time I ever spent a Shabbos in Manhattan anywhere was when I was by the Schachter family many years ago. And Rabbi Nervison Schachter's son, Shai, who's now uh, you know, uh, one of the up-and-coming uh, um, ra- rabbis, one of the biggest uh, community rabbis, shul rabbis in America, um, now, so I knew him when he was still we together in the Mir Yeshiva, and um, I guess Rabbi Shai now, we were both uh, by Rabash Ravili together, we were roommates in the dormitory together, so I was able to spend the Shabbos by him and his parents when I was still single many years ago, and that Shabbos kind of encapsulates, I got the whole neighborhood, I got the whole story of the neighborhood in that Shabbos, it kind of encapsulates it because when I arrived on Friday afternoon, I couldn't find any parking. And that was definitely the introduction to the neighborhood. Spent an hour in the pouring rain looking for parking. Had a lot of people honking at me. And then Friday night, I davened in Breuer's in the main shul. And then the next day, we walked through the neighborhood and got to see, you know, all the other uh, residents of the neighborhood. And and uh, and then we davened and learned in, 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 uh, in the yeshiva in, in YU got a tour of the campus, so I kind of got everything uh, in there. So I play for both sides of the team. In fact, my wife's grandfather, the Katzenstein, so he, despite being part of the Breuer's community, and there's always a bit of a tension between the two sides of the neighborhood, OIU and the and the Kaladaz, KAJ, there's, uh, you know, there's different, different, uh, Different ideals and different ideas, and Tairu Umada and Tairim Derecheretz, and there's different nuances and close proximity in a city neighborhood. But despite the fact that he was a member, a member of KJ, so he went in to YU. And he was a chemist, he was a big Talmud Chacham. He was actually, later on when he lived in Baltimore, he was one of the only Balabatim to have ever received, have the privilege to have received smicha from Rav Ruderman. And um, either way, many years later, so he told me this this story. He said many years later, he was at some sort of social gathering, a simcha of some sorts, and he was speaking with the distinguished-looking Talmud Chacham. And and uh, over the course of their conversation, it came across. He asked my wife's grandfather asked him, Kassenstein asked him, where he had learned when he was in his youth, and he said, "Oh, I learned here. I learned there. I also learned at some place in in, in Manhattan, in New York City." So he leans over to him, my grandfather leans over to him, and he says, it's okay, you can say the truth, you don't have to hide it from me, I also learned in YU. So that's, uh, that brings out a little bit of the, of the uh, excitement of the neighborhood. Now just a little bit of background of the neighborhood before we get into the real stuff. It's you know, the northernmost tip of Manhattan, and um, although the Jewish population was very dominant for many years, but also, a lot of Dominican immigrants from the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico. You know, have, uh, the famous baseball player Manny Ramirez, who grew up in the Dominican Republic, moved to Washington Heights when his family moved here, and 
And speaking of baseball, Lou Gehrig uh, was born in Washington Heights and lived almost his entire rather short life in Washington Heights um, with Yankee Stadium, the Bronx being right across, uh, right there. In fact, Vin Scully he was born in the Bronx, but he grew up in Washington Heights. There's a lot of baseball stuff. In fact, the, the Polo Grounds, the old Giants uh, Stadium, was basically, you know, at the edge of the neighborhood. In the neighborhood, Coogan's Bluff is right in uh, in Washington Heights. And so there's, you know, a historic place that the Polo Grounds full of history. You know, Willie Mays' famous catch and the shot heard around the world by Bobby Thompson and Ray Chapman being killed by a pitch, and Christy Mathewson, of course, is a pitcher there. There's so much to go on just about the polo grounds, but that's enough of baseball uh, for now. Um, in the context of what's going on today in the United States, so Malcolm X was assassinated in Washington Heights in 1965. That's another part of the neighborhood. Um, Alan Greenspan, the head of the Federal Reserve, who... It was also born in the Heights. Jacob Chavez, the senator uh, from New York, lived for a time in Washington Heights. And of course, as part of what we're going to speak about, the German-Jewish uh, refugees running away from the Nazis, fleeing the Nazis in the 1930s. So Henry Kissinger was uh, was also the one who lived in the Heights for many years, so which, we'll, which we'll get back to. And it's in that during that time when there's this massive Jewish immigration to Washington Heights um, during the 1930s, that it receives its name, that it's known by as Frankfurt on the Hudson. Even though there's a lot of German Jews, Austrian Jews, a lot of people fleeing from the Nazis in the 1930s, but Frankfurt became the dominant Kehillah, Rav Breuer, Rav Schwab, the KJ Kehillah, so it became to be nicknamed Frankfurt on the Hudson. In fact, the YU campus actually was there first. There was a it moved from the east side in January 1929, and Rev. Revel, um, who was in charge of YU at the time, wasn't YU, it was Rabbeinu Yitzchak Hanan and Yeshiva College. It wasn't Yeshiva University yet. And um, he projected building a a big campus, and, and he built the main building in what many shuls in Europe in the same style, a Moorish revival style that a lot of the prominent shuls especially in Central Europe and Hungary and Czechoslovakia and Germany, Austria and other places were built. He was modeling the first university building to ever built like that because he was showing that it's not just a university, it's, it's, it should remind you of a shul, not, not, a, not a regular university. And he has all these grandiose plans and he had to put the plans on hold because January 1929 they move in and a few months later, October 1929, the Great Depression uh, breaks out and the ensuing, um, you know, high unemployment and bad economy, um, and so they they remain small and they only build up uh, over time. Now I'm not going to focus on the YU part of the neighborhood. I'll bring in a little bit here and there and a few good stories here and there, um, just in the context of the neighborhood because YU deserves its own uh, episode and hopefully we'll get to that. Um, we have been doing a few on personalities from YU. Maybe we'll get to YU itself one day. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll just mention it in passing in the context of the neighborhood. In fact, in, in the late 1930s, uh, Rev. Revel makes an effort to bring over rabbis, providing visas for and affidavits for different rabbis to be able to 
make it out of Europe in time. And one of those rabbis was Rav Breuer. Mr. Jacob Samuel was the one who encouraged Rav Breuer, and he hosted him, and he pushed for it, and he made the sh- and he spoke to Rav Revel. So Mr. Samuel was was the catalyst, and then Rav Revel was the one who gave provided the visa at the beginning of the war, um, and Rav Breuer was able to come over. Even uh, you know even spoke to Rav Revel about uh, about the possibility of uh, of becoming a Rabbi in YU, but it was never under serious consideration, and uh, that idea was dropped uh, very quickly. Um, so we have during the 1930s a lot of German and Austrian Jews arriving from Germany, fleeing from the Nazis. They don't go to the Lower East Side. They don't go to for the most part. They don't go to Brooklyn. They end up in Washington Heights. Why Washington Heights? There's a lot of reasons. It already was a Jewish neighborhood. Already at the turn of the century, there are already quite a few shuls there. Uh, the Upper West Side was the established German neighborhood, and these penniless refugees, um, for the most part, couldn't afford the Upper West Side, and this was kind of nearby, and it was cheaper. Um, they, the Lower East Side and most neighborhoods in Brooklyn had the reputation of being for Eastern European Jews, and back in Germany, the uh, German Jews called them Ausjuden, Eastern Jews, and also, you know, they preferred to stay uh, in their own neighborhoods. And, and there are other factors involved also, and it's also a domino effect. Once a few families settle there, they encourage their friends and families to settle there also. And soon enough, Washington Heights becomes a destination for all the German There's You're talking about tens of thousands, over 20,000 German Jewish refugees, mostly secular. Uh, there are some Orthodox, but uh, mostly secular. And like I said... It already was a Jewish neighborhood with quite a few shuls. In fact, Rav Moshe Mordechai Epstein, the Slabatka Rosh Hashiva, one of his trips to the United States, he spent the Shabbos in Washington Heights. And they, the whole Shabbos afternoon, he was uh, AWOL. They couldn't find him. He was missing. And uh, Rav Baruch Kaplan said, oh, related this story. You have to work out the years. Um, a little tricky because when, when this story happened, um, but possibly it did happen. And they uh, found him uh, sitting on a bench in the neighborhood, admiring the construction of the George Washington Bridge, which was under construction at the time. Uh, and, and of course, that's a f- major feature of the neighborhood and changed both Manhattan and New Jersey and Washington Heights once that was built. Now, what Rav Breuer's vision was when he f- made it over, you know, he made it over in 1939. He left after Kristallnacht. Um, he stayed in, the, in Frankfurt almost to the end. And and he decided, and when he came here, he was invited by a group of Jews, recently arrived Orthodox Jews from Frankfurt, to come to their little minion. They had a Shabbos minion. So he comes to their Shabbos minion, and after Shabbos davening, he says to them, "Well, what time is Shachris tomorrow morning?" And they said, "Well, we don't have a weekday minion. We only have a Shabbos minion." So he says, "Okay, so let's start a weekday minion." And when he moved into the neighborhood, he hosted the weekday minion in his private home. Three times a day, a weekday minion in his home. He had little kids still, uh, not, not so little actually. He's right in his 50s. Um, Rav Breuer pretty much lived forever. He was like 98 when he passed away. Um, so he decided that he's not just going to have a shul, he's going to build a community, a kahila. And that was his vision. Um, he's not going to limit it to becoming a Rosh He was, when back in Frankfurt, he was a Rosh Hashiva. He was the Rashiva of the of the Shabshunafal Hirsch Yeshiva. 
in, in Frankfurt, and he was also the Rav of one of the shuls there, but he was not the Rav of the Kehillah, of the community. His father was, or Rabbi Dr. Solomon Breuer, his grandfather, of course, Rabbina Hirsch, Rabbi Shamshin Rafael Hirsch was, but he wasn't. There was other Rabbanim who were the Rav. And he, here, he decides he's going to model uh, the Kehillah that he's going to build and call it the same name, Kaldas Tashurun, after the Frankfurt Kehillah. And the first thing he does is build a mikvah. He said, there's no, no such thing as a community without a mikvah. And before we build a shul, before we build a school, we're building a mikvah. And even though we're talking about cash-strapped refugees during wartime, um, you know, in a pretty desperate situation, he forges ahead. And he builds the mikvah in 1943. And he says this is going to be a whole community. It's not going to be a shul. It's not going to be just a school. It's going to be everything. That's the idea of a of the Frankfurt Kehillah. That's the idea of the Rav Shaphat Hirsch Kehillah. That that the Kehillah provides all the spiritual needs of its people, or even all the social needs. There's a hall, and he makes forms a chaver kaddish, and they buy a plot of land in New Jersey for a cemetery. He starts his own hashgacha. First his own shechita, and ironically, nearby, nearby in Yonkers, uh, the Rav in Yonkers, Rav Alexander Rosenberg, who was the Kashris expert, and this is before he founds OU Kashris. Uh, Rav Rosenberg helps out Rav Breuer start his own Ashkacha. Rav Breuer has this Ashkacha become a pioneer in Chal of Yisrael, because there's no compromise in Chal of Yisrael when the rest of America was, uh, you know, had the Tzalem Rav a little bit, Started the first Chal Yisrael, but Rav Breuer took it to a new level, and before it was readily available in the city, and most people were relying on the eating Chal of Stam and regular milk, Rav Breuer, uh, no compromising, we're having Chal of Yisrael. He starts a publishing house to translate Rav Hirsch's Sfarim into English. He starts a community noodle, newsletter, the Mittalingun, and I probably heard the name 40 times, and I still don't know how to pronounce it. And when does that start? In September 1939, right after his arrival. And it starts off mainly articles in German. Most of the articles he writes, eventually it switches over to English. They still had some, it was mixed German and English for most of its years. And he writes literally hundreds of articles for it. He starts his own Besden, he brings in Dayanim, starts a shul, starts schools, boys, girls, high schools, he starts a butcher. He says a community has to have a kosher butcher, a kosher bakery, a kosher matzah bakery. In 1940, he, oh, he starts, his wife, Rebitz Enrique Breuer, start the sisterhood of the community. And he spoke, he used to speak to them and explain the importance of the role that the sisterhood has to play in the, uh, in the kehila. Now the kehila ma- model is something that's important to understand. It, it, it's almost non-existent in the, in the post-war. We, we almost don't know what it is. And that's the real story here. And that's the reason that the story of this neighborhood, more than any other city in, the, in this great American Jewish history series, it's the story of a specific kehila, um, along with everything else that went on in the neighborhood, of course. But the, the KJ kehila is really a story of, of how to rebuild a community in its entirety and its completion. Now, before Breuer, um, um, sorry, he... Um, uh, sorry, he, he, in addition, he wanted it to keep uh, all the customs from Frankfurt. But in, like I said, there was many German Jews 
in the neighborhood who were not from Frankfurt, from all over Germany. So he wanted to accommodate all the German Jews. Um, so he even modified some of the customs in the shul and in the community that it wouldn't be specifically Frankfurt, but all Ashkenaz, all, all of Germany, which, you know, for the Yekis was a big thing to modify the customs. He took a lot of pride in the choir that the shul had. Um, a lot of pride. My wife's grandmother, Katzenstein, said one of the last things, his, one of, basically one of his dying wishes was to keep the choir strong. And in fact, in his tzavah, in his will, he mentions the choir three times. That's how important it was. Now, interestingly enough, a lot of the songs that are sung by the choir was composed by a fellow by the name of Lewandowski. And Lewandowski composed most of his songs for Reformed temples back in Germany. And these songs are used in KJ. And KJ was the big one fighting the reform. Rabbi Shamshin Rafal Hirsch was fighting the reform back in Germany. So Rabbi Shimon Schwab was very much bothered by that. And Rabbi Shechta told me that he was bothered by it. And he had someone ask Rabbi Shimon Schwab what, what's, what's the reason that Lewandowski's songs are used in KJ if he composed them for the reform temples. And Rabbi Schwab says, I was bothered by this for years. And the answer that I came up with is that, that he didn't actually compose the song. These are ancient Nigunim, old songs that Lewandowski touched up, he changed, he modified, he made it more for choir singing, and he, and he played around with it, and that's, and that's, and that's why it, it's attributed to him, but really the original compositions was older songs. Now, since Lewandowski was composing it for Reformed temples, in Reformed temples there was mixed men and women singing, and of course in KJ there would be nothing of the kind. So how do they do? So the, the tunes were made for choir singing, and women have different types of voices than men, so the, the KJ solution was to have little boys. They would, they would sing the, the parts that were originally meant for women. Now the choir, both the boys and the adults, had to come to choir practice. Till today, you have to come to choir practice every week. If you miss it, you're not allowed to sing in the choir. They're very insistent on, on minhagim, on their customs. Very keep every custom strong. Um, uh, you know, you daven there Friday night and you hear the choir and the chazan and the way the, the get up, the, 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 the costume of the chazan. It's something to see and it's a great experience. The decorum that the shul has, very orderly. The way that you walk up the steps to the Aran Kaidish and when you open the curtain to the Aran Kaidish is in, in sync with what with what they're up to in the song. Everything is exactly, perfectly, uh, you know, the, the, the number step you're up to has to correspond to if they're up to Mi Yale Bahar Hashem in the singing in the choir. And if you take out the Sifre Torah from Darin Kaidish, and the guy stands on top of the bima holding the Sifre Torah and these beautiful silver crowns, and it really is a magnificent uh, scene, a regality uh, of, of, uh, of the experience. And in 1952, when the shul was built, the kahila had more than 800 families. So it was a booming kahila. And if you want to compare it to other communities in 1952, a lot of the big Hasidic rabbis were still barely scratching a minion in other parts of New York City at the time. And here the kahila was, had more than 800 families. It was booming. It was financially stable. Today we don't even know what a kahila is, what a community is. But that used to be, that's really a topic for itself to explain what, what a community, what a kahila structure was and how it developed, but that used to be everything. And it's disappeared in the modern era, a lot of factors involved. Um, first the Hasidic movement, 
changed the kahila structure. Then the yeshiva world came and changed the kahila structure. And then uh, you're talking about still in the uh, 18, 1800s and the 19th century, the 19th and 20th centuries, excuse me. And um, the, eventually the governments of Europe stopped recognizing the independent or the autonom- autonomous kahila structure. Of course, the migration to the big cities, the urbanization, in which there were huge Jewish populations in big, busy, bustling cities, also damaged or changed. I don't want to say damaged, that's judgmental. Changed the, uh, fundamentally changed the Kahila structure. So to be able to take a group of refugees in a world where the Kahila no longer exists, to envision it and to recognize its importance and to bring it to fruition is absolutely not a small feat. And uh, definitely a topic that should be fleshed out in general. Now, besides for YU, and which I'm going to get back to, and Breuer's Kahila, which I'm also going to get back to, it's important to note that, like I said, there are other Jews who live there, like German-Jewish refugees from other parts of Germany. In fact, a great example, there was a, a fellow by the name of Rabbi Dr. Leo Yehuda Breslauer, and he's a great example of a Yaki Rav and the community in Washington Heights that was not affiliated with the Breuer's community. He was a Rav in Fiert, and he only arrives in America in 1941 in the middle of the war. He stayed with his community till basically the very end. He comes to the United States, and he takes over a refugee community from those areas of Germany that he had come from, from Fiert, from Nuremberg. Um, in fact, Henry Kissinger's family was part of his shul, and he was Henry Kissinger's rabbi. He officiated at Henry Kissinger's bar mitzvah. He was the Masada Kedushin at his wedding. He had, on the one hand, he had a doctorate, um, Rabbi Breslauer, but he's also a big Kanoi, a very big anti-Zionist. He was uh, very active in the Agudas Yisrael, but on his Jewish calendar at home, he would cross out Yom HaTzma'ut on the calendar. He wrote quite extensively in Hebrew and English and German, left over an archive. Um, his son, Reb Schleimer Breslauer, was my fourth grade Rebbe in Yeshiva Spring Valley in Muncie. He was a big Rav and a Paisic in Muncie and based Fila. And he was a long time uh, Rebbe in, in, in Yeshiva Spring Valley and a long time Mile. So that was uh, Rabbi Breslauer's son. In fact, there was also a Hasidish Shtibel in Washington Heights. The Dumbrava Rebbe, Ramat Chedavid Unger, who was the found of, founder of, uh, of the. Uh, was not in Washington Heights. He was the founder of the Dumbrov Hasidic dynasty. He was a Talmud of the Chayzeh of Lublin. He also knew the Naim Elimelech himself, and it was a Galicianer dynasty. And eventually they married into Tzans. Also, one of their, their Tzans, Dumbrov descendants, uh, moved to the United States and was a Rav, I think, in, in Crown Heights, the other Heights. And his son is the current Bub of 45 Rebbe, and his name is Ramat David Unger, and he's named obviously for the dynasty's founder. But either way, getting back to Washington Heights, at one point there was a uh, another uh, descendant of of the Dumbrava Rebbe, who was a Reuben. Was the and, and the this Dumbrav branch of the Hasidus Dumbrav is simply a town in Galicia. Uh, was Rabbi Sacher Barish Reuben, and he moved to Germany from Galicia. And he becomes a Hasidish Rebbe in Berlin, which perhaps was the first in Hasidus also. And there were, um, like I mentioned about the Ausjuden, the Eastern European Jews, there was migration west. Migration west mainly went to America, but some settled down in Western European countries, Germany and Belgium and 
in, in France, in England, and there was many um, Eastern European Jews, Polish Jews, Litvish Jews living in Berlin. Um, and, and, and so there was the Chesidish Shtibel, the Dombrover Rebbe, lived in Berlin. In Frankfurt, there was less, because that's all the way on the west side of Germany, southwest Germany. Berlin is much closer to the Polish border, and there was much more Ostjuden in Berlin. Now, he then, when the Nazis come to power, moves to America. And I guess because he came from Germany, so he settles in Washington Heights, and he opens a Shtibel. When he passes away in 1952, his son, Rabbi Stroll, becomes the next Dombrover Rebbe. And he's also in, in the... In, in, in Washington Heights. So there were other uh, shuls as well. But if we get back to the Yekis, so you have Rav Breuer, you have Rav Shimon Schwab, you have the president of the Kahila, um, Dr. Rafal Muller, who was uh, Muller, Muller, um, German names are hard to pronounce, and whose daughter I know very well, she's my great aunt, and, and he was, you know, he literally built uh, the community, Dr. Muller, um, you have Rabbi Posen, who was brought in as a dying by Rabbi Breuer. You have one of my, my wife's relatives, Manfred Katzenstein, who is one of the leaders of the community, one of the Katzenstein brothers. And Harry Levy, and later on, Rabbi Chaya Geli, is brought in as one of the Rabbanim. You have the Chazanim, who bring the traditions uh, from Frankfurt, like Robert Frankel and David Kenner. And each one was a personality, and each one added to the to the uh, to the building of this kahila, the singing, the singing customs themselves were interesting. I mentioned the choir earlier, but they had actually a different kaddish for every different tune that they sang kaddish for every occasion of the year, every holiday, um, and, and 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 the same tune would be by Shir Hamalos or Shir Hamalos by Benching. It was a different tune for every occasion, every yomtiv. Every occasion, a bris, a Purim, Pesach, a wedding, they all had, and I'm not talking about the famous Yaki Shir Hamalos that they sing at all kinds of occasions, I'm talking about the tunes that they sing for Shir Hamalos before benching. Now, this is, this is a wild party in, in the KJ. On Simchas Torah, this is, this is out of control Yakis. They sing the year Kaddish, the year's Kaddish, the Simchas Torah Kaddish, they sing all the year's tunes in one Kaddish. And that's and that's a big party. Now, Lechadaydi, even though originally in Frankfurt they, they didn't sing Lechadaydi because it was a new custom, it only came 500 years ago, but eventually it crept in. Um, they sing Lechadaydi, but they sing Lechadaydi, also specific Lechadaydis for every time of the year, every period of the year. I remember I was visiting, I was in Bayit Vigan for Shabbos by my wife's grandparents, and they, and they davened at a Yaki Shul in, in Bayit Vigan, uh, the Groshul, Ironic name for a Yaki Shul. And, and, uh, and the guy had the audacity to sing the wrong Lechadaydi. It was during the year, and he sang the Lechadaydi from the three weeks uh, Nigan. I guess it was a sadder song. It's hard to tell what's sadder and what's less sad in Yaki songs. But it was, it was, he sang the wrong song. And immediately, my grandfather's mood went sour. And the whole way out of Shul, he's, talking to all his friends, and he says, the guy sang the Lechadaudi from the Drei Wochen, from the three weeks, and it's not the three weeks now. And when he came home, my grandmother asked, her, asked him, how was Shul? He said, Shul was lousy. The Chazan sang the Lechadaudi from the Drei Wochen, and it's not the three weeks now. And, uh, and these things are very important to keep the customs of old, and, and that's definitely one of the features of the Kehila. Um, the the uh, of course the Tyrim Derecheretz and the separatists, the Austrit 
of of separating them, which is I guess what would add to the tension with uh, with uh, with other communities in the neighborhood, like YU. The idea that when Frankfurt, they the uh, KJ Kahila, the Kadashim Kahila, was not associated with the other Orthodox Kahila in the neighborhood. Uh, Rav Shamshin Hirsch's vision and what he fought for of Austrit, of separating the Jewish, the Orthodox Kahila, that it shouldn't uh, recognize any other stream of Judaism. And if an Orthodox community is not as extreme about their uh, their positions in Orthodoxy, so they didn't recognize that back in Frankfurt, and therefore um, it might have added to the tension because Austrit was a very strong component in Rav Breuer's philosophy as well. Now, the um, Rav Breuer himself was a true leader of, of uh, the community. He, like I said, the way he started, about what time is Shachos tomorrow morning, he he wrote endlessly for the Kehillah newsletter on a range of basically every conceivable issue. It's it's hard to find another Gadol B'Yisrael of his age, of his generation, who had what to say with clarity on every issue imaginable of his day, on education, on Tyra, on business, on current events, on, on the Kehillah, on Eretz Yisrael, on, on everything. Today they put they compiled a bunch of it into a book. It's called A Unique Perspective, fantastic book. Um, and and, uh, and he, like, he, like I said, he, he tried to emphasize how Tyra Derech Eretz is relevant today, and we're going to implement it, but it's very different than Taira Umada, and therefore there was uh, that tension between uh, the two communities. Though, like I said, Dr. Revel was the one who brought him in with, together with Mr. Jacob Samuel, and they did have a cordial relationship, but, but uh, he definitely never taught there. Rev. Breuer was very patriotic towards the United States of America, um, and, and he goes on to build the institutions that the community would need to be able to build itself up. And one of the first things he builds is the yeshiva. Yeshiva is Rabbeinu Shamshin or Fall Hirsch. Um, he brings in very impressive Russia yeshiva, first from Naftali Friedler, uh, later on the Novominsker Rebbe, Rabbi Yaakov Perlau. They add on, and they had an elementary school, they have a high school, there's a post-high school, they even had a koil, which is not exactly the Frankfurt tradition, but in, in the 20th century, that's what became accepted. And they had a koil there as well. Um, the the uh, the original high school that Rav Breuer started, the first Rebbe there was Rav Simcha Wasserman, the, the son of Rav Elchanan. And Rav Shaga Feivel Mendelovich helped Rav Breuer start it. Rav Shaga Feivel had a big affinity to Rav Shamshin Fal Hirsch and his whole philosophy of Terem Derech Heretz. He was very close to Rav Breuer. And, and the idea that he, they were going to start a high school that had secular studies, not just that they had secular studies, but they saw secular studies as being an ideal because of Tayyarim Darecharetz. So it met opposition. And one of the opposition was ironically from Reb Mendel Zaks and of course Reb Aaron Cutler. And therefore it shut down after a few years and only opened much later in the 1950s. The elementary school though flourished, both the boys' school and the girls' school and the girls' high school. And the, one of the unique, he, Rav Roy wrote the curriculum and he included that they should study the entire Tanakh. Rav Roy loved Tanakh, so did Rav Schwab. They gave shiurim in Tanakh. In fact, uh, Rav Roy's shiurim in Tanakh were in German, but Hauch German, Hauch Deutsch, uh, high German. And Rav Schechter told me that even though he studied German in college and spoke a fluent Yiddish, he went to Rav Roy's Navi shiurim and he did not understand his German. 
Uh, Rav Shimon Schwab, one of the innovations that he brought in when he became the Rav together with Rav Breuer in 1958 when he was shipped in from Baltimore, so was to give Shurim in English, which would, uh, um, which would bring in the younger generation who didn't grow up on, uh, on, the, on German. So the Tayyarim Derech Eretz permeated the school. Uh, the ones who ran the school in an administrative sense were Harry Levy and Manfred Katzestein, who were business partners, but everyone saw them running the yeshiva all the time. And they were very active in the Kehillah. And they said, these people, these two Balobatsim, are running the Kehillah and running the yeshiva, and their whole business partnership is, is just a front for their real job, which is to run the yeshiva. That's the way they spoke about these dedicated individuals. So the high school reopens in the 1950s. One of the reasons it opened only then was the um, Rav Breuer's philosophy was to only initiate building more institutions when they had the internal finances within the community to sustain it and to build it. That's a very, very rare position to take in the Jewish world. And uh, once we mentioned the Breuer's Yeshiva, so one of the most prominent alumni that it produced is the current Biyana Rebbe, who, was, uh, who went to the Yeshiva before he went to Tervidas and before he went into training to become the Biyana Rebbe. Eventually, after Breuer's wife passed away, it's Rika Breuer, so they didn't just have a high school for girls, but they opened a teacher's seminary for girls. Now today, these institutions all are still there. Today, because of what we'll speak about later, because a lot of the Yekis and members of the Breuer's community moved out to Muncie and other places, so now there's more of the YU community populating these yeshivas than, than the Yekis, which is another uh, irony. Now, Reb, um, um wow. Okay, so we'll stop it here, and part two will come very soon, and I'll continue with the story in part two. So this has been uh, Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, um, part one of Washington Heights, and you can reach me at uh, Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. Uh, Geber is G-E-B-E-R-E-R for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips to places of interest in Jewish history, and you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites. Check out our website, YehudaGeber.com, and I hope you enjoyed.